0: That's great. Just before we get started, I have one last thing to mention, which is many of you will know Jared Lynch, who's been a part of our church for a little while now. Um, Jared's been a Bible college student and an intern. <laughs> we'll wait for the next sound. Jared has let us know that this is going to be his last um, Sunday with us. He's come to the end of his degree and he's going to be joining a church in Kabulcha. So um, make sure and take some time after the service today to go and say good day. Um, Jared, mate, your ministry has been a blessing to us, and your time with us has been wonderful. So we hope uh, that our church has blessed you in the same way as well. Yeah, as I said, make sure and grab Jared after the service. Now, in our time in the, the Word, um, we have been making our way through the book of Proverbs. Um, but on days like today, we do like to stop and do something fit for the occasion. Now, two weeks ago, when we, um, when we had a baptism service, we looked at John chapter 3, and so, hey, let's look at John chapter 4. Uh, that we can have a mini-series within the series going. That's very exciting. Maybe we'll do John 5 in December at the next baptism service. I don't know what's in John 5 off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's applicable. Um, John 4 tells us the famous story of the encounter between Jesus and a lady who just gets known as the woman at the well. Um, we, we give her a name, but I'm not going to. Um, and this, this encounter between Jesus and this lady... Uh, is, is extremely helpful for us to consider on a day like today. Um, we'll pick up the story in verse 4 of John 4. It says, he had to pass through Samaria, and so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Uh, The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, so here's the setup for our story. It takes place at a place called Jacob's Well, which, um, just for fun, I've got a picture of it. It's still there. You can go and have a Look at it in the Holy Land today, Um, though they've built a church around it. It's less outdoorsy than it was at the time when this was happening between Jesus and her. Um, Here's here's the first key piece of understanding uh, for this encounter that we need to to have fresh in our memories. Um, John says it pretty well. The Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. It's a thing that we need to understand. Samaria had been the capital of the northern part of Israel in the past, Um, but through the course of history, the people from the north had been conquered and interbred with a foreign nation, which had led to a strong sense of both racial segregation between the Jews and the Samaritans, as well as religious conflict. Um, They shared a history. They shared some concepts of religion, but there was no lack of animosity between them and no small amount of differences either. Um, This is why the story of the Good Samaritan, hits the way that it does when Jesus uses the Samaritan as the good guy in the story. And so here is Jesus, a Jewish man, talking to a Samaritan woman. She's a little surprised. She's surprised because he's a Jew and he's speaking with her. And she's surprised because she is a pariah. It says that she comes to the well at the sixth hour. That's the middle of the heat of the day. That is not the time when you do the physically intense job of going and collecting your household's water for the day. Water is heavy, if you didn't know. She's coming at the well, coming to the well at the wrong time. She's avoiding the crowd. Uh, And we'll see more details that show this is probably because of the reputation that she has earned for herself. And here is Jesus speaking to her. Well, what does he have to say? Well, what happens next is that Jesus does the thing that he often, that he often does, uh, where people are speaking to him and they say something pretty ordinary, something that you might consider normal conversation considering the circumstances, and then he starts talking about some eternal principle which is, at best, loosely related to what they had said to him. That happens quite often. Here's a good example of it. Jesus answered her, "'If you knew the gift of God "'and who it is that is saying to you, "'Give me a drink,' You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't actually expect him to walk up to the lady at the well and say, would you give me a drink, please? And for her to go, would you give me living water? It's, that's never going to happen. He's, he's drawing her in. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, you can picture him pointing at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Have you ever noticed that about water? Um, For my children, they'll be thirsty again about three minutes before bedtime. That's the time when their thirst will be unquenchable. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty. You have to come here and draw water. (laughs) Jesus said to her, Well, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. (laughs) Brutal. (laughs) It's a little bit uh, almost rude, isn't it? Here we go. Here is the sign that Jesus is going to show this lady something special about himself. With this comment, um, he has put his finger right on the pulse of her personal life, her core need in existence. It's a little bit direct, perhaps, but he's not being mean. No, what he's doing is that he's revealing to her that he has miraculous knowledge about her life, that he knows exactly what he's talking about. And he's using that knowledge to speak directly to her pain, which is the part of her life where his message about the living water is going to connect most deeply. This is probably why she's here in the middle of the day. And not in the morning with all the other people. For this lady, this moment of this man I'm speaking to, knows my secrets. He knows my shame. He knows my flaws. He knows my situation. It's a penny drop moment, and suddenly she realizes she's talking to someone special. She's not going to waste this opportunity. And so she asks him some of her big questions about God. What does she have to ask? We pick up the story in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem it is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but... The hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. That's a big moment, if you don't realize. Jesus quite directly tells a Samaritan woman that He is the Messiah. Okay, There were many times in Israel where Jesus had refused to directly answer that question. He is honoring this lady with a trust that at that moment in time He was not giving to everyone. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And we'll stop the story there. The story ends with Jesus needing uh, to spend a moment correcting his disciples who were a bit alarmed about him talking to this lady. Um, And then a number of people from the village come to believe in Jesus as the Christ after the woman tells them all about him and comes to brings them to to meet him the part of this encounter which I'm wanting to draw your attention to today is that teaching moment that comes when the woman asks her questions about faith our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship Here's where we get to a thing. Uh, I think that if I was to walk down the street today and ask 20 different people, what is Jesus on about? That I would get 20 different answers. There is a lot of confusion about what it is that Jesus came into this world to accomplish. There is a lot of confusion over what it means to worship God. At this moment in time, where the story is taking place, and between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Samaritans, the debates around God were over as much as anything else. Where? Where should we worship God? Think about this lady. She's living a very messy life. She has a lot of very big needs. She's doing stuff that is definitely outside of God's will for her, and she knows it. And then she meets a prophet who has miraculous insight into her life, and her first question for the prophet is, where? Where should we worship God? It's that important to her. She's kind of missing the point, isn't she? This mountain or that mountain? Because it turns out that it's part of human nature for us to find it more comfortable to argue about those sorts of things than to let God deal with the content of our hearts. That monofocus on that question explains a lot about the world that we live in today, doesn't it? And why that conflict seems to be never-ending. Jesus explains to this lady the kind of religion that he came to establish. And it's not about where. It's not about this mountain or that mountain. It's not about the mere external details of your life. It's not about being part of the right club. It's not about having the right parents. No, Jesus tells us in John 4, 23, that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And those two words together, to worship in spirit and to worship in truth, describe something essential about what it means to belong to God and to worship Him. What does it mean to worship in spirit? And truth, let's consider each. Jesus came to cause us to worship in spirit. To worship in spirit means to worship God in a supernatural way. A way which is enabled by the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within That's what it is to worship in spirit. What I mean by that is that Christianity is a supernatural religion. The most important details about what it means to be a Christian are not about stuff that you can do. It's not about being a good person. It's not about doing the right actions. It's not even about being in church. All of those things are crucially important to a healthy life. But they are not the things of first importance. You can do all of those things and not be a Christian. At the most fundamental level, a Christian is somebody who has had a supernatural encounter with God which has left us changed on the inside by His power and by His presence. The Bible teaches that we are all born, separated from God by the problem of our sin. Sin is the thing in us that makes us hostile to God. We see it at work in us whenever we find ourselves doing things that we know we ought not to do, but we go there again and again and again, perhaps like this lady at the well. There are things in your life that you know are outside of God's will, and yet they have a hold on you. Jesus here hints that from the point of view of this story, which happens before Easter, that at some point in that future, His worshippers will worship in spirit. And that is because when Jesus died on the cross, it was as a sacrifice to atone for sin and to bring forgiveness. That when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he now, he now lives there forever and gladly sends the Holy Spirit to all who ask. That means that God wants to come into your life in a miraculous way and to transform you at that fundamental spiritual level level, at the level of your being, from the inside out, so that it could be said of you that there is a spring of living water inside of you pouring out, not something that needs to be put in anymore. A Christian is no less than somebody who has had the power and person of God at work in them in this special way. You can't be a Christian without this, without that transforming experience, this is the second birth that we heard of in John 3. This lady, do you understand, is worried about which mountain, because she has two mountains in mind. There is one hill in Jerusalem, which has a Jewish temple on top of it, and there is one hill here in Samaria, which has a Samaritan temple on top of it, and she's asking, which one matters? Which is the real one? What's important about a temple? Temples are meant to be a house for God, the place where he lives, so to speak. And Jesus says to her, a day is coming when the mountains will be irrelevant because God is going to take up residence in his people by the presence of his Holy Spirit. Not a building. Temples are no more. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If I have a car with no engine, a cut and polish is not going to fix it. It doesn't matter how how much you wash it, you black the tires. It's a thing that I've done maybe zero times in my life. You can't wash away a missing engine. That is the life of faith. The presence of the spirit within is what makes it possible. You cannot be a worshipper without the spirit's help. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. You must be connected to Him in His essential being. If we are to understand what the life of faith is meant to be, we need to understand that it is not primarily something that we do, it is something which is done to us. And if you want to have God in your life in that way, you need to ask Him. You need to come before Him and A, B, C. A, accept that you are a sinner who needs saving. B, believe that Jesus died in your place and for your sin. And C, confess that Jesus is the only way to God, asking him to forgive you and to send his spirit to make you new. Jesus says he will give the spirit to all who ask him in this way. If you had known who was speaking to you, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. The offer is still good. Next, worshippers, true worshippers, worship in truth. To worship in truth means that we believe what God has said and we go on to live in step with that belief. We take God at His word and we do what He says. If we did not have the reality of the spiritual encounter, this does not work. Do you understand? This this is to be understood alongside being a worshipper in spirit. Without the spirit, you won't do this. But once you have received the Holy Spirit, once you have the engine room of the spirit sorted, this is naturally what comes next. What I believe Jesus has in mind here is the death of hypocrisy. A hypocrite says one thing but does another thing. This lady is a good example, isn't she? Which mountain? Asks the adulteress. She's not a beacon of spiritual maturity. She's worrying about this thing when she should be worrying about this thing. Lady, you've got bigger issues. Do you know what I'm saying? There is a disconnect between her supposed faith and her life. It's hypocrisy the Spirit-filled person believes God's truth is true and because of that, lives their life based on that truth. They do it in reality. Not perfectly. None of us are perfect. But in principle, it's our aim. All of the time. This is not how everyone approaches the truth. I had a friend once who claimed to be a vegetarian, but he would eat chicken. Drove me bonkers. I'm not describing here a lapsed vegetarian. It's not that he was committed to the ideal, but sometimes his desires for the colonel's special recipe just got the better of him. And he made a decision that he knew was wrong. Later he repented in tears, I shouldn't have eaten the chicken. It's just so, so tasty. It was that he denied any disconnect between being a self-described vegetarian and eating the chicken. I am a vegetarian who eats chicken, he would say with a straight face. Can you see why this friend drove me bonkers? Disliking red meat does not make you a vegetarian. That word has a meaning, and that's not it. The person who claims to belong to God, but who doesn't believe what God says is true, is a lot like my friend... quasi-vegetarian. It's a nonsense. It's not an option. All Christians still wrestle with their old nature. We will do until we meet Jesus face to face. We all still sin. We're not perfect. But Christians know that God's truth is true and that our sin is sin. And we worship God by believing Him by standing on His truth, by basing our lives on His truth, and by actually going through with our commitment of faith to walk into maturity. We worship in truth, which means we are to worship Him as the truth, and we are to worship Him in reality, and not just for pretend. The day is coming, it is now here, When true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, God is seeking such people to worship him. Well, today, we believe that we have found one of those people in Jacinta. We are going to be celebrating with her in just a moment that she believes that she has come to worship God in this way. Isn't that the most exciting thing? Uh, we're going to celebrate her relationship with God being like this through the symbol that Jesus gave us to celebrate it. She is going to be baptized. If you're unfamiliar with baptism, it is a, a symbol given to us by Jesus to perform at the beginning of the Christian life. It is a symbol which symbolizes two essential things about what it means to be a Christian. Firstly, it symbolizes the death and resurrection that we participate in in jesus as as jacinta goes under the water it's like her old self being dead and buried under the ground and as she rises again from the water it is like her being born again to a new kind of life perhaps more relevant to our passage for today the other thing it symbolizes is the renewal which comes by the holy spirit as she goes under the water from, top, um, from tip to toe, she's going to be completely and utterly saturated, unless I miss a bit. <laughs> she comes up out of the water, which part of her still remains dry? The, that water symbolizes the saturating presence of God's Holy Spirit sent into all who have asked and we receive. Would you make Jacinta feel welcome? Because she's going to come up now, and she's going to share with us the story. Patsy, thanks for no gun.